Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today's episode has been inspired by the tragedy of the Nangala, a submarine of the Indonesian Navy that disappeared earlier this month with 53 crew members on board and only 72 hours of oxygen to keep them alive. The submarine disappeared off the coast of Bali, 96 kilometres to the north, and debris from the sub and an oil slick strongly suggested that she had sunk. Items recovered included a sponge from a thermal insulation sheet, a bottle of grease believed to have been used to oil the periscope, and debris from prayer rugs all of which could only have come from inside the submarine. The submarine was designed with a collapse depth of 200 metres, but was operating in an area much deeper. After five days of searching, Nangala was found at a depth of more than 800 metres. Initial inspection of the sunken ship revealed that the wreckage was divided into three parts, with the hull and stern separated. At this stage, it's impossible to know what caused the incident, perhaps a material or mechanical failure that led to catastrophic floods, perhaps a fire. This has led to a great deal of discussion in the press about submarine design, so I have taken the opportunity to talk with Andrew Chung Han Lin. Andrew joined the National Maritime Museum in 2004 and has held the post of curator, historic photographs, ships, plans and technical records for about 17 years. His core responsibilities include researching, cataloguing and facilitating access to this material. Although the collections in his care comprise a vast range of periods and subjects, Andrew's particular research interests are the Royal Navy the US Navy and Imperial Japanese Navy during the period 1860 to 1945. This field of expertise has allowed Andrew to help us explore the fascinating history of British K-class submarines. 
These were steam-driven submarines designed and built during the First World War, and they were generations ahead of their time. But of the eighteen that were built, six sank, and none of them through enemy action. Only one ever actually engaged an enemy U-boat, and its torpedo failed to explode. Their name K-class earned them the nickname Calamity Class. Among the many and wonderful archives at the Caird Library in the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich is the magnificent ship plans collection, and one of the finest surviving plans of them all is of these K-class submarines. To go with this audio episode, we have animated one of these ship plans to help make sense of the infinite intricacies in this most beautiful but very complicated drawing. So do please find that video on the Mariner's Mirror YouTube page, and also on uh, the Instagram channel and the Society for Nautical Research's Facebook. But for now, do please enjoy listening to Andrew talk about this extraordinary moment in the history of submarine design and the troubled history of the British K-class subs. Andrew, thank you so much for talking to me this evening. Sam, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, let's just start about talking about this this terrible tragedy in Indonesia. What are your thoughts about that? Well, to be honest, I don't really know what to think. It's early days, really. I I know very little about the specific submarine that has been lost, but I know she's a derivative of the old um, West German Type Two O Nine diesels, which had have a wonderful reputation for reliability and serviceability.、Um, I I would be fascinated to know what the Indonesian investigation throws up when they've completed their analysis. Um, I find the fact that the submarine's been found in three pieces rather shocking. I'm I'm curious to know what happened there. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to be discovered there. I mean, the, the good thing about it, I suppose, from our perspective, is it allows us to talk about、um, the design of submarines in the past, and particularly to focus on what we're going to talk about、um, today, which is the K-class subs. And I'm really fascinated by these because they were so far ahead of their time. Um, but at the same time, they had had significant design problems, didn't they? They did indeed. I'm a great admirer of the K class and the efforts that went into making them work. But you you are quite right. They、um, I won't go as far as to say they were foredoomed, but it was very much an uphill challenge for their designers, particularly in terms of the technology that they were working with at the time and what they wanted to achieve with that technology. Yeah. I mean, let's start with what they wanted to achieve, because they wanted a a high speed fleet submarine, didn't they? Tell me about that. Well, the the idea that you could have a submarine that could accompany the battle fleet was a very attractive one, because most senior officers still thought in terms of set piece fleet battles. And one of the great frustrations of submarine technology was that virtually all submarine designs were too slow, and they couldn't keep up with the fast battleships and battle cruisers. Uh, just prior to the K class,、uh, the British had developed the J class, which showed a lot of promise. These were fast subs. They weren't fast enough to keep up with the fleet, but it gave the Admiralty the hope that something could be developed which could. And they wanted a submarine that could could exceed twenty four knots, which at the time was regarded as an impossibility. Yeah, I mean, if you think about that, that's that's such a high speed to be able to achieve. And let's just put this in the in the chronological context. So it, they were thinking about these designs just before the First World War, and that's so far ahead of its time. 
Uh, unbelievably so, yes, yes. The, the earliest discussions take place around 1912, 1913, and they overlap with discussions for what they called the Polyphemus design, which was a, um, well, she's difficult to describe, really. She's, she's a, a very low-profile torpedo cruiser with an incredibly high speed. But the dimensions and the sorts of things they wanted to get out of Polyphemus are very similar to what they end up with with the K-class. And although nothing is provable, because unfortunately the paper trail is not as dense as we would like it to be, Mm. One wonders whether the abandoned Polyphemus design had a new lease of life in the K-class. Yeah. Well, let's just talk. You mentioned their size there. That's interesting. And they were trying to build build an enormous submarine compared to what had ever been before. Oh, yes, very much so. They, um, they were aiming at a design that would have been over... Wh- whichever design was adopted, all of the proposals exceeded 300 feet in length, which was enormous for a submarine. And when the case finally went into production, they averaged over two and a half thousand tons submerged. Uh, so the, these were enormous subs. Um, I'm just trying to think what would be a good example uh, as a size comparison. When the first K-class was launched, I would say it massed about three times as, as much as a contemporary German U-boat. Wow. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, I, I came across a recent comparison uh, recently that said that the the uh, the K class submarine was basically as long as Big Ben. Oh so if you're in the middle, if you're in the middle of London, and everyone can visualise just how big Big Ben is, that's how large these these subs were were being uh, being designed as, which is an extraordinary thing. Um, one of the, the fascinating things I find about them is the is the idea of having a retractable funnel. So it's almost like they were they were half surface ship, half submarine. Yes, you're absolutely right there. They were a curious hybrid and the designers were a bit stuck because the only engines that could produce the required power to, to give them their surface speed were the sorts of engines you found in surface ships. Uh, contemporary submarine engines simply couldn't do it. So the K is, they are very odd hybrids in a sense, because they do have the machinery that allows them to creep along as slowly as any other submarine underwater. But an enormous part of their hull is given over to surface ship style engines, which of course need funnels to feed fresh air down into the boiler spaces. And, And a huge issue with the Ks was how on earth do you solve this issue of needing to put holes in a craft which by its nature wants to have a minimum number of holes in it? Yeah. I mean, how did how did they solve that? I mean, if you look at the ship plans, particularly, it's 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 quite extraordinary. The size of the funnels. Yes, they employed an ingenious system of hydraulically operated telescoping funnels. This technology had been in the Navy for a long time. The Victorians had had it, but they'd never applied it to something quite as imaginative and off the wall as this. So in theory, From the control room, the officers in command of the submarine could hydraulically lower the funnels and seal two pairs of watertight caps over the over the funnel um, openings to render them watertight. And the idea behind making everything automated was you cut down the amount of time it took before you were ready to dive. So on paper, the whole process could be completed within 30 seconds. It sometimes took a bit longer than that, but not much. 30 seconds. That's extraordinary. It makes you think about the chaos that would have happened on board when they were preparing to dive. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, and, and 
given the number of people who would have to be warned, because of course you'd need to evacuate the, the, the boiler spaces anyway when you were preparing to dive. So there'd be a lot of noise, there'd be a lot of people moving about, there'd be lots going on, and you'd have to be paying attention to this control panel waiting for a load of green lights to come on to tell you that the sub was sealed and ready to dive. Um, you say that the the paper trail is quite limited. I'm fascinated by that because it's, it's one of these, it creates a gap in history that historians will have to try and fill. Are there accounts of people sailing on these and, and, and struggling with the retractable funnels? Uh, yes, there are quite a few accounts. Uh, uh, the the Ks seem a very divisive class of boats. Some of their former crew and captains loved them, others absolutely loathed them. Um, a couple actually changed their minds over the course uh, uh, of time. So, in general, you, you get a favourable comment. Um, there's a lot of esprit de corps in, in the 12th and 13th submarine flotillas, which were the K boats. But come the ni- early 1920s and peacetime, a lot comes up to challenge the conventional wisdom that says that the boats were a success. The Admiralty, of course, maintained that they were, were a success, um, but their record, unfortunately, speaks against them there. Um, And there is, of course, the terrible accident that befell K-13 when she was on her trials, and that was linked to a failure in the telescopic uh, funnels, which which sank the submarine in the Gairlock. Tell me about that failure. When was that? What happened? She was undergoing her trials. It was 1916, I think, and they had completed most of the manoeuvring trials and one diving trial successfully. And it was decided to do a second trial just to just to make sure the first one hadn't just been a fluke. Um, unfortunately, what appears to have happened is that something obstructed one of the um, funnel caps, so it didn't close properly. Uh, however, and this was a rather serious failure, in the control room, the indicator board appears to have gone green uh, across the board. So the poor fellows in the control room thought that everything was sealed up and ready to go. And so they dived the boat, not realising that there was a, um, an open hatch. And because of the size of the aperture, it's believed that the water, when it began flooding into the uh, boiler spaces, came in at a rate of about 30 tonnes a second. So for men who are caught by surprise and have very little time to react, you're not going to be able to close and shut a watertight door in the face of that amount of water. Uh, so K-13 mm. sank very, very rapidly uh, with 81 men aboard her. Where did that happen? Uh, up in the Gairlock in Scotland, uh, where she was undergoing her trials. Uh, and has her wreck been discovered? It was raised. It was raised. Uh, they managed to salvage the um, hull a short while later. And amazingly, they rescued something over 40 men. So there were a lot of fatalities, but many of the people aboard, and this was a mix of um, submariners and civilian contractors, uh, who were trapped inside the submarine for quite a long time, but they managed to get them out in the end. What a wonderful story. Uh, yes, it, it was one of the more positive outcomes. Uh, K-13, uh, um, grim though it is, was hosed out, refitted and, and put into service anyway. I wonder, I mean, one of the the, the, the real strands in the news was how long the, the poor Indonesian submariners had. Um, before their oxygen ran out, it makes me wonder how long they had to actually get the uh, get the survivors of the K thirteen up. Do we know that? Um, we don't know for sure how long they would have had. Uh, it wouldn't have been long if the salvage operation hadn't been as quick as it was. Um, 
one of the one of the senior officers was able to make the surface and make contact with the salvage ships so he was able to direct their operations uh, and as, uh, and help them locate the submarine that was crucial because arriving on the scene was what really guaranteed the rescue of the men inside they were able to connect an air hose to the end of the submarine that held the survivors and so keep them going that way and um because of the unfortunate experiences the Royal Navy had had with submarines in its early days, they not just had they didn't just have the capacity to send the men air; they were even able to send them rations as well. So it didn't matter that they were trapped down there for uh, well, it was a matter of days in the end. Um, they were able to keep them alive until they could refloat that side of the submarine. It um, opens up a whole window into the history of sea trials for submarines about which i know nothing at all but it but it makes you realize that you know that there has to be so much infrastructure around it and preparing for the worst um should we talk a little about about the the early failed trials that you know the the the, the sore experiences that the navy had had uh yes yes well they for the most part they we were quite fortunate uh, or at least the navy was i should say um, most of the sinkings uh, occurred in shallow water. It was easy to rescue the men. There were one or two cases with the early boats where they simply dived and did not come up again. Uh, and, and they weren't found until it was too late. The other great danger for submarines in the early days was manoeuvres. And this never stopped being a danger, but very often merchant shipping in, in, an, in, in the submarines operating area was not warned that there were submerged submarines. And so it was not uncommon for a submarine to disappear during an exercise. And a few days later, a merchantman would put in um, to be docked for repairs because it had hit something that had damaged its hull. And of course, the crew of the merchant ship would have no idea what had done this. Um, yeah. the, the one submarine disaster that, that is, is remembered most after the Ks uh, actually occurs later at a time when you'd have thought... Uh, this sort of thing wouldn't happen anymore. But in the late 1930s, HMS Thetis uh, was undergoing her trials. Um, she'd been built at Laird's in Liverpool and um, she suffered an accident and sank uh, in similar circumstances to K-13, uh, uncontrolled flooding and, and lots of people were trapped inside the submarine. Only this time, tragically, none of them were rescued. And this was 1938, I believe. Yeah, it makes you realise that, you know, the early history of, of submarine warfare goes back to the 19th century and um, makes me think of, of what was going on in the American Civil War. And, you know, the other examples of people really um, braving a new world and, and having the courage. It's, you know, if you, if you compare it to people flying to the moon, it's, I mean, it's really not that, it's not that incomparable. I mean, you get into a craft and you don't know exactly what's going to happen to you. No, I think it's a very good comparison, actually. And, and um, you're right, the isolation when you're in a submarine it, it, it is very similar to the isolation that you would get in a spacecraft, because realistically, if you're in a vessel that relies on secrecy to, to ensure its operational effectiveness, the downside of that is if something goes horribly wrong, half the time your own side doesn't know where you are. Yeah. Oh gosh, that's something to think about, isn't it? Ooh, so, yes. um, not only not only was there a problem with with um, sealing the the hole in the funnels, but they weren't very manoeuvrable. These K class were they? No, they were not. Uh, and I personally believe that one of the reasons they did not do well is that their crews were rushed into service. Ordinarily, with a vessel this complex, 
you would want a long period of training and familiarization. Uh, and it's not to say that the K-class crews were not trained, but they were having to learn on the job because their submarines were being commissioned and put straight into combat flotillas. And so every time you went out, it wasn't into a safe training environment. It was into, um, into an environment where you'd potentially meet an enemy. So you had the added stress of that. And the, the, the received wisdom seems to have been that if you put highly experienced submariners in command of these ships, then that would somehow solve the problem. But it didn't mm. really, because even for a very skilled subskipper or, or a skilled crewman, this is something completely alien to you. You've never served in anything th this big before. Their handling characteristics are very strange. Um, like any large uh, submarine, they are sometimes prone to doing strange things. There are many accounts of K-class submarines suddenly nosediving and heading for the bottom. And most of the time, this, this problem could be solved. It could be corrected. And, and the crews just came back with bumps and bruises and a bit of gallows humour about what they'd just been through. But on one occasion, um, a K-class sub just vanished completely. And the fear is, uh, I don't think the mystery was ever solved. It nosedived, but unlike the shallow North Sea, um, they couldn't count on the fact that the submarine was longer than the depth of the water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Gosh. Um, one of the, the real shocking tragedies of the K-class subs is what happened at the Battle of May Island in January 1918. Tell me about that. The Battle of May Island was a terrible tragedy and it has stamped uh, a, an indelible, horrific mark on the memory of the K-Class. Essentially, it was a large-scale fleet operation which involved both squadrons of K-boats. Uh, it was a night exercise, so the, the Grand Fleet was putting out um, the, and, and they had effectively uh, operated in a night cruising formation. So destroyers went ahead, then one of the K-boat flotillas 
then battle cruisers five miles behind them, then more K boats, and then battleships behind those K boats. Now, operating at night uh, in a formation like that, when you're in submarines that one WAG described as um, vessels that had the speed of a destroyer, the turning circle of a battle cruiser, and the bridge and command control facilities of a patrol boat, is possibly asking for trouble and a misuse of this weapon that you have in your hands. But even then, arguably, the, the collisions that followed, because that is what happened. It's called the Battle of May Island, but there were no Germans present. The two K-boats that were sunk and all the other vessels that were severely damaged in this, this so-called battle were down to navigational errors, collisions, things going horribly wrong in the darkness. But when, when one examines the sequence of events, it arguably wasn't the K-boat's fault because there were two patrol boats who do not seem to have been aware of the exercise somehow, which got in the way of one of the K-boat flotillas and one submarine, K-14, swerved to avoid them, at which point her rudder jammed and she was then rammed by one of her sister Ks. And this starts a chain reaction of events whereby ships coming up behind um, either suffer near misses or actually ram the stopped submarines. To make matters worse, the K-boats that have gone on ahead hear that their flotilla mates are in trouble uh, and their command ship uh, actually turns round to try and assist, which turns out to be the worst thing they could possibly have done because they add to the collisions and the chaos. So by the end of it, um, two K-boats are sunk outright. Um, Several more vessels are damaged and many, many men are killed and injured uh, for no, no real purpose and no real gain. The whole exercise was a disaster. Mm. And it's not long before the, the Ks are sold for scrap, is it? They don't survive long into the 1920s. Uh, it's partly that the Navy is having to make huge economies after the end of the, world, uh, of the First World War. And they, don't, they try very hard to find... A role for the K class but there simply isn't one and they can't really justify keeping them. They keep the most advanced boat which, which was completed in the early 1920s and they use her as an experimental testbed for most of that decade and then she too disappears but the majority of the Ks really don't stick around for very long. Yeah but the, the idea behind them did didn't it? Oh it did yes yes um I, I find it quite tragic that after all the effort that was put in to make this concept work, it didn't work for them at the time because, of course, we now look at our nuclear attack submarines and in terms of what we expect them to do, their capabilities, uh, their speed, they basically are the fulfilment of the K-Class. So really, uh, what, what the poor Admiralty designers really wanted in 19. 15, 1916, was the ability to build nuclear-powered submarines. But uh, <laughs> unfortunately for them, the technology simply wasn't there. But it does illustrate just how far-sighted they were. Yeah. Um, let's just talk about the, um, the, 
the plan for the K-class subs that you guys have at the uh, in the Caird Library at the National Maritime Museum. It's a, it's a truly magnificent document. And I'm fascinated by ship plans, full stop, but particularly ones that are kind of extraordinarily magically bewildering. And I don't think there's a finer example than the uh, the, the plans of the K-class subs. Uh, I think you'd be quite right there. Uh, yes, I, kn- I know what you mean. I, I recall the first time I ever unrolled uh, any of the K-class plans. And even though I knew what they were and I had a vague idea of what to expect, I looked at this thing and I just thought, what on earth am I <laughs> looking at? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's it's like nothing on God's earth, which I suppose in some ways is quite correct. <laughs> exactly uh, what it was, yeah. Something yes. completely new. Yeah, yes, um, and a completely odd, odd way of trying to solve a problem. But but I love the I love the way the Admiralty's draftsmen just embrace the challenge. It doesn't matter how complicated it is, it doesn't matter how downright weird it is. They've been told what to draw, they're going to draw it, and they're going to draw it in the most loving detail that they can. Yeah, it's a, it's a work of art, isn't it? Yes. Uh, more than anything else. And I, you kind of get the sense that the people who were drawing it were thinking, this is, this is better as a picture than it is, <laughs> than it is as a craft. <laughs> I think that must have crossed at least some people's minds. <laughs> yeah, but but um, I suppose orders from on high are orders from on high. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about a few of the features that you can see on the plan because it's really worth picking them out. And the guns are fascinating. They're, they are really lovingly picked out as well. Tell me about the guns on the K-Class. Yes, as designed, the, it, the armament that is chosen for them says a lot about how people imagine them being used. And so the basic K-Class armament as designed is two four-inch guns for fighting on the surface and a three-inch anti-aircraft gun the latter I find very forward thinking, but I suppose they were aware of the threat posed by German zeppelins uh, and um, seaplanes at the time. So it wasn't unreasonable that you'd want a gun capable of bringing down aircraft. The four inch guns do surprise me a little bit, though, because the last thing you want to do when you're on a submarine is engage surface ships. And I can understand yeah, and that's what they're for, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes. And if you're if you're a commerce raiding submarine, then yes, by all means, employ these things against merchant ships that have no chance of fighting back. It lets you save your stock of torpedoes. But the K's are designed for fleet work, so I'm not entirely sure what was going on there because their main strength is in their torpedo batteries. Uh, the the guns yeah. almost seem to be a bit of a forlorn hope to me that if you're if you're running on the surface and you've had the misfortune to be caught by enemy surface ships then perhaps you can at least make a spirited fight of it before you go under but but being a submarine you have no armor to speak of you have no survivability to speak of and you're a whopping great target if you're a K class submarine yeah that's a very good point I mean the uh... I'm fascinated by the um, the fact that on the drawings there are, there are quite there are several aspects of the drawings which actually didn't exist in practice. So you're looking you're looking at a drawing of something that was never actually used. Um, and the four inch guns are one great example because they were so it was so wet that they mm. weren't actually used. Yes, yes, it was impossible to use them at speed, and that was another argument against having them because the poor fellows attempting to use them would have either been soaked or washed away especially if you were batting along at 24 knots at the time. Uh, But it doesn't stop the very odd experimentation. And as the war progresses, the Ks go through several armament changes. 
There's a, a photograph from about 1917 showing one of them, I believe it's K-22. They've taken away her after four-inch gun and replaced it with a depth charge thrower, which is a, a fascinating thought that you'd somehow use a submarine <laughs> as a surface patrol boat to sink a U-boat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but but it existed, and then uh, obviously you've got the um, the drawings of the funnels themselves. You see, they're such a curious shape. Um, it's, they look a bit like a pizza oven, a, an enormous pizza oven, kind of in, put in the middle of a submarine, don't they? Yes, they do, and they look very very weird indeed. Especially as I, I if I recall correctly, um, they they're drawn half um, half lowered on the plan, aren't they? There's a profile of them straight, and they've also got the hinge um, bringing bringing them down into the casing. So it leaves you in no doubt as to how they're supposed to work, but it does look very, very peculiar. There, there's yeah. something, I, I don't know whether it's just because we're so accustomed to seeing submarines, but there's something about the profile that just strikes one as intrinsically wrong. Yeah. And, and, and I'm reminded of a, a comment one of, a, one of the midshipmen made when he trotted up to join, I think it was K-17. He took one look and he remembers asking another sailor, that's not a submarine, surely, is it? <laughs> but, do you know what? I think um, the beauty of these plans is that they kind of, they bring out the inherent submarine designer in all of us. I am not a submarine designer, but I took one look at it and went, oh, that's not going to work. No. <laughs> brave effort. Brave effort, fellows. But no, no. Uh, what do you, what, yeah. If you don't mind me asking, what did you make of the broadside um, torpedo tubes? I've... Uh, yeah, also extraordinary, um, and uh, it made me it just opened up a whole kind of can of worms about about tactics and what they were trying to do. So let's talk about those torpedo tubes. Um, they've got ten. I was mm. amazed at how many there were. Ten eighteen-inch torpedo tubes, and as you say, there were they were um, well four in the bow, but you've got four more abeam for broadside fire. Yes, yes. Uh, that that was. Um, there's various reasons for that. Um, in the case of the K class, we're covering all the bases, uh, but you might be surprised to learn that broadside torpedo tubes have actually been a feature of British submarines for a very long time. Um, they appear in the famous E class, which did very well, and they actually, in some weird way, seem to have been the preferred one to use. I'm not entirely sure why that was, but we we t our designers tended to favour broadside tubes. We put bow ones in as an afterthought, but really, you know, broadside was the way to go. And it's only when we started examining foreign designs just before the First World War, and we realised a lot of other people were putting the were putting most of their effort into bow tubes and doing something else with the middle of the submarine. And that's when our designers begin thinking, "Oh, that's novel, but all right." Uh, yeah. So, it, it, so uh, broadside tubes carry on in British submarines throughout most of the First World War. The Ks aren't the only ones to have them. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I, I like the fact they had they had a pair on a revolving mount on the superstructure as well, um, which is a, yet another feature which didn't kind of work in practice. Uh, yes, it it would have been washed to blazes by the spray and the the uh, the sheer interference from wind and wave made the operation of those tubes impossible because of course they weren't they weren't automated there had to be some poor fellows there actually manhandling the things round so you'd never fire those underwater as well this this is another interesting commentary on how people envisioned the K's being used I have a sneaky suspicion that. In a surface battle, 
they almost wanted them to be high-speed torpedo boats running on the surface because that would make more sense of their speed in terms of keeping up with an enemy battle line. So the, so the submerging would only take place if you got there ahead of the enemy fleet and wanted to set up an ambush. But if you turned up and they were already there and you needed to chase them down, then for the poor K crews, it, um, it would be a matter of pursuing them on the surface and trying to get into torpedo range. Weirdly enough, that's the concept behind the aforementioned Polyphemus-type cruiser, that this thing would just charge along and rely on its very low profile to ensure its survivability, at least until it could get into range to launch its torpedoes. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the poor people on board. Um, what was the crew like on the K-Class, considering it was so huge? Well, there wasn't much space. You would expect a submarine like that to have relatively luxurious accommodation for its crew, and sadly that was not the case. Uh, they needed just under 60 men, 59 I think was the exact number, and 59 people is very hard to jam into even something as large as a K-class submarine, uh, because, simply because it's over. it's very nearly twice the number of crewmen that you'd get in a conventional submarine. So all that apparent extra space vanishes very quickly. So for the ordinary men, you would have your your bunks, which are little more than wire racks, and <laughs> very uncomfortable, I'm sure, in between the torpedo tubes forward, uh, in between the stowed torpedoes, everywhere you could jam a human being. In the machinery spaces, aft, just aft of the engine room, you'd, you'd have some limited space where you could stick more people. The officer's accommodation would have been roughly amidships near the control centre, and their accommodation would have been better, as befitted men of their rank, but not much better. Uh, looking at the plans and going over them with a, with a ruler, I can understand why you're not advised to become a submariner if you're any taller than five foot five, because <laughs> it, it, you, you're in for a very uncomfortable time if you are. Yeah, I mean, God, yeah, and then you've got to hope that it doesn't sink because someone forgot to shut the, the hatch on top of the yes, funnel. Yes, is that too? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, how do we how do we end this? I mean, is it are they the, are they the best subs ever designed because it was so ingenious what they were trying to achieve, or were they the worst because they failed? I think there has to be an element of both there. Um, the execution was uh, of a brilliant idea was sadly lacking. But I think I think the the Admiralty's constructive department's history was probably not wrong when it said the boats were successful in a technical sense, but failures in an operational sense, because they, I think, they were put in too quickly, uh, in into situations they were not designed to handle. Their crews were not given enough time to properly familiarise themselves with them, and in in another sense. The intended use of them was wrong-headed. They were, they were brilliant craft, but the tactical situation they were designed for was so specific that, that the chances of them being able to prove themselves in ideal circumstances were probably about as frequent as the chance the Grand Fleet got to show what it could do, and it only got that one chance at Jutland. Mm, it's a very good point as well that, you know, that this, 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 the same problem actually applies to the surface fleet as well. It does, yes. But I think it's worth leaving the last word with the Germans, because like every other navy, the Germans had considered the idea of the high-speed cruiser submarine. 
Uh, and their designers had been given a similar set of specifications fairly early in the war. And rather flatteringly for their British counterparts, the German designers looked at the resources they had available, looked at the specs for this class of submarine, and their, their answer basically boils down to, you cannot do this, it's impossible. It is beyond the capacity of human technology to achieve such a device. It cannot be done. And yet in 1918, to their surprise and horror, because they don't know what happened at May Island, they see the British fleet has these enormous high-speed submarines, which a few years before they told their own navy were utterly impossible for anyone to create. So I think some credit must go to the Royal Navy for attempting it, even though it was a, a terrible, terrible failure in the end that cost the lives of nearly 300 people, both Royal Navy submariners and civilians who were, were working on them. But it was a brave effort and, and perhaps some would say maybe worth trying. If they had been a success, we would have been singing their praises ever since, but it was not to be. Wonderful. Thank you so much for talking to me this evening. It's a, it's a, it's a new chapter in the history of maritime, the maritime world that I really want to find out more about. Thanks, Andrew. It's been a real pleasure, Sam. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, that's it for now. How can you help? Do please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. But if you listen on an iPhone, then leaving a review on the podcast app will be hugely beneficial. Of course, do also please tell all of your friends about the Mariner's Mirror podcast. But best of all, please join. Join us. Join the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk and your annual subscription will go towards publishing the most important maritime history and towards preserving our maritime past. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.